on this episode of Hear Tell, a daughter's quest to preserve family legacies as a disease robs her mother of her memories. Long before daylight filled my New Jersey childhood bedroom, I gave up trying to sleep and crawled out of bed. As I tossed my clothes into a suitcase, I heard Mom shuffling around her bedroom at the other end of the hall. Downstairs below us in his bedroom, my brother Barry was up too. Today was moving day. My name is Andre Gallant, and this is Hear Tell, a podcast about true stories and how they get told. We're a project of the Low Residency MFA in Narrative Nonfiction program, housed in the Grady College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. My guest today is Karen Thomas, a 2017 graduate of the program. She joined me remotely from Dallas, Texas. Karen is going to read an essay called Traveling Graces. The essay concerns the decision to move her mother, Beryl Thomas, who had Alzheimer's and died in 2016, into a care home. The plan had been long in the making, but when the day finally arrived to move her mother halfway across the country into an assisted living facility, Karen worried if that decision was truly for the best. Traveling Graces is part of an in-progress book project currently called Stealing Away, Alzheimer's and One African-American Family's Journey. And the thing about that particular disease is it's how it robs the brain in ways that, I mean, we all know that people forget things, but actually being a witness to what she was losing was a lot larger than just that. Karen was born in the Bronx and discovered a love of writing and storytelling early in life. A career in newspapers took her from Massachusetts to Illinois, where she became a national correspondent for the Chicago Tribune, and finally to Texas. Karen took a buyout from the Dallas Morning News and transitioned into teaching college journalism. She's currently a professor of practice at Southern Methodist University. Karen used her time in the MFA program to delve into her family's story and the legacy of her elders while she rooted into research on memory loss in the African-American community. Her work asks questions about the family stories we pass down to future generations and why we choose to save those particular narratives. After Karen reads her essay, we talk about the theme of travel in her mother's life and how to manage time in storytelling. My mom was amazing. She went to college at 16, the first in her family to do so. And really, it's her brain that saved us all these years. So to watch her sort of lose the function of that, you know, the most vital organ that you have just was a very painful, difficult journey. The other character other than yourself and your mom in this essay is your brother. Tell me about him. My brother, Barry, that's my youngest brother. We're 11 months apart. We're Irish twins is what they used to call that. And our favorite joke used to be, you know, we're the same age, but we're not twins. How could that be? And people would be stumped and not understand why we had this overlap in age. Um, We grew up as best friends. Honestly, we did. We did a lot of things together just because we were so close in age. I have an older brother, but he, you know, of course, was doing his own thing. So he and I just spent a whole lot of time together. And when my mom got sick, you know, we started talking about, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to take care of her? Um, At the time, my daughters were young. And he was like, you know what? I got this. Don't worry about it. I will keep her here for as long as I possibly can. 
and you know you you go on about your life, go about raising your children and doing what you have to do. And so we kind of made a pact. My mom was very much instrumental in also how all of that happened. When we called her, we're the ones, I'm the one that came home and noticed that she wasn't doing well and needed to be tested. And then when we figured out what it was that she was dealing with, she already knew. My mom had a medical background. She totally knew what was happening to her. She was just trying to keep it hidden. And once she couldn't hide it anymore, she had a game plan. We went to her lawyer, we went to her financial people, and she made it very, very clear what she wanted to have happen and how it was going to happen. And we just kind of sat there, like, stunned, because, you know, we're now we're dealing with an illness that's terminal, and on top of this, this woman's just taking control and, and telling us what to do. So, you know, we just kind of really followed her wishes, and who knew that my baby brother was going to be leading the way in doing that. So when did you decide that that this what your family was going through was something that you wanted or needed to write about? Yeah, I don't know that I wanted to. I think it was more of a need than a want. And it started because as things were progressing and happening the only way I knew how to process them was to write about it. So I started writing these little vignettes about what was happening. I would write a, you know, a vignette, for instance, about the first day I thought she didn't recognize me or the first time she didn't call my children by name or, you know, just little things that I just started writing these little um, stories. And I pulled them together and I wrote an essay when she was still living with my brother for the Dallas Morning News. And the reception I got from that essay was just so tremendous. I'm like, there's a need out there because there are not very many stories about people of color in particular living with this disease, for one thing. And the other is just in terms of kinds of things that people were asking me about was kind of like, well, how did your family divvy up the duties? Like, how did you and your brother come up with who did what? And how did you deal with your older brother? And so as people ask me very specific questions, just to back up a little bit, I had always had this fascination with the women in my family from my great-grandmother and my grandmother and my mother, who were very strong women in very different ways. And I always wanted to tell their story in some kind of way because I thought it was kind of unique. So... This kind of became the vehicle in which to examine that, because my grandmother also had Alzheimer's. So all of those things rolled together made me, first of all, question what my legacy was from them. Like, my greatest fear is, am I wired just like my grandmother and my mother, that I'm going to get this disease? And if so, what does that mean and how does that work? So those were, so I had some medical science questions for myself, for one thing. And then the other was, these were just some kick butt women who, at, who were kick butt in a time and place where they didn't really become who they could have become just because of society and, you know, and what they had access to and what their opportunities were. Is there anything else we need to know before we hear your essay? Um, The only other thing I would say about my brother Barry is he is a very 
um, regimented, unique kind of human being. He needs very little material things in life, and he's also very organized. So for taking the lead and taking care of my mother, he was almost perfectly suited to do that. Um, And his, his personality just lent him to taking care of her in a way where I don't think I could have or my brother. And the interesting thing is my mom was like, I never thought that my my youngest son would be the one to take care of me. But he just was amazing. And now, here's Karen Thomas reading Traveling Graces. Long before daylight filled my New Jersey childhood bedroom, I gave up trying to sleep and crawled out of bed. As I tossed my clothes into a suitcase, I heard Mom shuffling around her bedroom at the other end of the hall. Downstairs below us in his bedroom, my brother Barry was up too. Today was moving day. Mom didn't know that. She was awake because she now never really slept at night. With her circadian rhythm erased by her malfunctioning brain, her days and nights endlessly folded into each other. During the day, a steady march of agency caregivers arrived. Mom took long naps in the afternoon from sheer exhaustion. At night, mother and son soldiered through until morning. Barry listened as Mom paced above. At the hallway outside of Mom's bedroom, he placed a portable gate, once used for a long-ago family dog, to keep her from roaming the house. He feared she would tumble down the stairs in the dark. He plugged in nightlights just in case. He worried that she would somehow rest open the front door that he kept locked. He set the alarm so it would go off if she got out. None of these safeguards allowed him to burrow down into deep sleep. Instead, he listened, gauging Mom's mood by her steady tread above. Without rest, his wide reservoir of patience thinned. He slept in his car during breaks at work. The fatigue lived in his voice, a new rasp now attached to his words. We knew it was time. I had already packed her bags and set up her room at Evergreen, the Texas assistant living facility I chose near my home. My mother is a first-generation black American, born to Jamaican parents who instilled a love of flowers. To honor those roots, I made the bed up with a beautiful new quilt with magenta hibiscus tinged in pink and orange. The flowers, complete with green stems, were scattered across the ivory background and graced the matching pillows. My husband hung one of my grandmother's paintings, the brown-skinned Jamaican girl with a straw hat and red ribbons, over her bed. I stocked a small red bookshelf with poetry books and stories with simple prose. Tucked in my purse was an arsenal of medicine, just in case she got anxious on the nearly four-hour plane ride. I hoped the transition would be smooth. I tried to manage all the details. Then I prayed for traveling graces. Mom told us this day would arrive. We agreed then to her terms. She would come to me and move into a facility when she could no longer stay at home. We had a plan. That was a relief. We didn't have to wonder what to do like so many other families. We didn't have to wait for some terrible event as a wake-up call a fall down the stairs that splinted bones, or a fire caused by a forgotten pot while cooking. We didn't have to worry that Mom wouldn't approve. Still, I was naive. No plan was ever really that simple. 
Now that the time had arrived, I realized we hadn't considered how we would tell her. Her reasoning and judgment and verbal skills were steadily sliding away. Who knew what she could really understand? What if she refused to go? What if the knowledge made her so sad she lost the joy she seemed to maintain? Bowery said it was best not to tell her. Her doctor agreed. My brother was at peace with that decision. Besides, he told me, he believed Mom knew. When a social worker came to the house to evaluate her for the facility, Mom became watchful, wary. She arrived at what he called a quiet acceptance. We told her she was coming to Texas for a visit with my family. She didn't know I was moving her far away from her friends and her sons, her home and garden, her bathtub and overstuffed bookshelves, a life full of people and things that she cherished. I was taking her to Evergreen, a place that seemed nice with leafy trees lining a walking trail, tiny yet clean rooms with twin beds, and sections called houses, and named like some summer resort, garden path, cottage place, and country lane. I couldn't bear to think that she would think I tricked her. It was a new life that I couldn't yet imagine. The truth was, I couldn't even imagine my own life. I long ago took on the majority of the child rearing. My daughters were still young and needed time and attention as they stumbled through adolescence. My marriage felt fragile, strained nearly to breaking point by demanding careers to children and my terminally ill mother. All these years, my baby brother spared me. Karen, I got this, he told me nearly a decade ago. He figured out what to do and guided me when I came home. He told me how to turn off the breakers in the kitchen so mom couldn't turn on the burners. He taught me to play classical music in her room to help her rest. He showed me how to take her downstairs to watch a movie on his huge television so we both could nap late afternoon before the restless night. Now it was my turn to stand at the front line. She was always there for me, although some lessons took me years to understand. One Sunday during my freshman year of college, she called me to say that she quit her job. I sputtered, unable to grasp how I would survive without a working parent. She listened and then told me to figure it out. With her children gone, she found freedom to pursue her own education. She earned first a master's degree and then her doctorate. Along the way, she gave me the gift of independence and the ability to see invisible pathways to my own dreams. What if I failed her, this woman who taught me so much? What if I failed my family? The truth was, I tried to trick myself. I couldn't say the words out loud. I could feel the beat of fear reverberate inside of me. I stepped outside the wide-covered concrete front porch. Along the porch's rim, Mom long ago attached flower pots to metal chains, and the impatience now spilled over their edges. With Mom beside me, we walked down the three steps to Barry's car parked in the driveway. I climbed into the back seat as Barry helped buckle Mom into the front. We backed out of the driveway and headed down Merrill Lane as her yellow house with a huge Japanese maple in its front yard disappeared. Once we turned out the neighborhood, familiar places blew past. The library Mom walked to when she could no longer drive. The Italian restaurant where I had my wedding rehearsal dinner. The bridge into Philadelphia that we crossed for cultural events and city life all places my mother would never see again. At the airport, my brother pulled the luggage out of the trunk. I avoided looking at him, fearing that the tears I blinked down would rage out. 
He hugged Mom tightly and kissed her. I promised to call when we arrived. We hugged and parted. My baby brother drove away in Mom's champagne-colored Honda, the taillights winking as he pulled into traffic. He was free for the first time in nearly a decade to go wherever he pleased for as long as he liked. Our switch was complete. I slipped my mom and my arm into Mom's and guided her inside. On the plane, Mom sat down in her seat. I haven't done this in a while, she said. As we took off, she patted my hand, leaned back into her seat, and fell asleep. Beneath us, the life she knew roared away. I watched her. She traveled like she was crossing an ocean to a foreign country. Travel once gave her freedom. She roamed the world, touring places she read about in books. She ate traditional cuisine in China, danced in Greece, and drank wine in Italy. She fed her intellectual curiosity. She was free from the burden of raising children, from the pain of being a young widow, and released from the constant struggles of fighting for tenure. She was free from being a single black mother in America. We never knew how she afforded those trips. We once joked that she had a slush fund. Like many other black women of her generation who took to international travel, she probably squeezed the family budget by cutting back on groceries, pushed her credit cards. Maybe she went to the hairdresser a tad less, or she just shaved what she could out of her slim paycheck. In the early years of her illness, Mom still booked those trips. She made it to Cuba long before its borders were reopened for American travel, and then South Africa, joining tour groups through her university connections. In South Africa, she told me the group took a bus to a township. When they arrived, barefoot children dressed in tattered clothing surrounded them. Out the window, she could see shanties, poorly constructed structures with dirt floors and corrugated metal roofs where the children lived. She didn't get off the bus. She didn't get out of her seat. She couldn't, she told me. She couldn't bear the noise, the dust, or the press of the children. She didn't want to bear witness to the poverty. I knew then South Africa was her last trip. Her travel joy was gone. She came home weary. Her declining ability to understand the nuances of the world around her probably left her unable to cope with her experience. She stopped being free. When we landed, her eyes sprung open before we reached the gate. We found my husband, Dale, gathered our luggage, and headed to her new home. As we drove, I stared out the window, passing places now only familiar to me. The golf course that sat on the outer edge of a huge park, the looming dome of the Cowboys Stadium at the edge of the horizon, and the bakery with delicious cakes, all places she would never know. At Evergreen, the memory care facility, Mom stuck her hand out at the front desk attendant. Hi, I'm Beryl Thomas, she said as she shook the woman's hand. The woman laughed at Mom's formality. Soon, the woman pressed buttons to unlock the door to where the residents lived, and we walked Mom the short hallway to her room. Mom sized up the quilt and the pillows. Pretty, she said. She paused at Grandma's painting. She recognized it. For years, it hung in her dining room until Barry sent it to me so I could place it in her room. I had it framed, but that wasn't why she looked puzzled. Why would Grandma's painting be here? She didn't ask. As we left her room for the dining room, she kept introducing herself to anyone we passed. Hello, I'm Beryl Thomas. As I watched her, it struck me that she thought she was at a resort. 
She bought the fakeness of the place as she introduced herself to others. That is what she did when she embraced new people in the midst of a new experience. That is why she paused at the painting. Why would the old be amid the new? I have no idea what was served at dinner that night or whether we ate. I only know I left my mother in that room with a pretty tropical quilt and her mother's painting down a short hallway from a door with a keypad that locked her inside. Her freedom was completely stripped now, ripped away when her yellow house faded from sight hours earlier. She knew her home. She was surrounded by the familiar, people, things, and scenery. I think of that as freedom of sorts. Home is our respite from the outside world, and her home still represented that place of comfort, even though her movement was limited by my brother's safety precautions. I tried to recreate that for her in that small room, but that room could never fully be home. I made it to the car before the dam of tears I held in all day sprung loose. This is best for her, Dale said gently. He meant to comfort me, but his words upset me. I was tired of hearing what was best. I know I did what was best for my mother. I know I did what was best for my brother. I know I simply followed the plan my mother created. Knowing those things didn't stop the terror from ticking or the tsunami of grief from exploding within me. I couldn't talk. As we drove away, I turned towards the window and openly wept. Karen, thanks for sharing that story with us. You're welcome. My pleasure. Your career as a journalist and and journalism educator taught you the practice of objectivity, of distance between reporter and subject. So I want to know what the process was like for you to find the ability to write about your family in this way. What challenged you and what came easy? Actually, it was quite difficult. And one of the things that I discovered is, is that Perhaps I didn't have enough distance when I started. It was so close and so raw and so emotional. But I'm still glad that I wrote at those times because I was able to capture that. So I have that um, that kind of balance in there. But now I can pull back and think about it in a more kind of... Um, I wouldn't say unbiased because I don't think this would ever be unbiased or totally objective because it's my life. But there is a way of pulling back so that you can see the larger picture. What did it mean for you to capture your family's life for the record like this as your your mother's uh, situation deteriorated and as your family dynamic was shifting so heavily? That was hard, too, because one of the things that I wanted to make sure that I did is that I maintained my mother's dignity. So, of course, you know, I witnessed lots of different things, but it's like, how do I share some of that and not um, not leave her undignified, if that makes sense? Um, And then the other is being truthful about what was happening in my own life, which was kind of painful at the time. My marriage was very strained through some of that. Um, And the other was writing about my brothers who didn't ask to be written about. My younger brother, I told him what I was doing, and he pretty much said to me, that's your story to tell. However you want to tell it, I'm fine with it. 
and he is. And my older brother, I'm not quite sure what he thinks. He hasn't really read much of it yet, so I'm not quite sure um, how that's going to go. And that's scary, too. I have to wonder, and uh, this question might reveal more about me than you, but it feels like writing about something so personal, so raw, that's been playing out in your recent life would cause incredible self-doubt. Like writing about it is just this torturous opportunity to comb through, you know, your recent actions with a hindsight that may or may not be fair. Um, how did it feel for you, and and how did you convince yourself to to write through that experience? Frankly, sometimes I couldn't. There were times where I literally had to walk away. It was just too raw and too painful, and I had too much grief to even see through it. So there, there were just times where I had to realize, and it took me a while to figure this out, that it was okay to spend some time healing or some time just processing, that I wasn't a failure as a writer because I had to do that, that, you know, because in a lot of ways, everyone else is producing things and I'm a deadline creature. So this has been very um, torturous for me. I don't know any other way to put it. And I have a lot of self-doubt of being true to story and being true to myself and yet just not, you know, understanding that I didn't have to reveal every little single thing, but I had to reveal enough to tell an honest story. So it's been, it's been hard. It's been a struggle. It has been a struggle. Things have worked in places and things I can tell I'm hiding. So it's kind of, and I'm still dealing with that. It's very, very hard to pull down those layers and and do that. And there are days where I go, why am I doing this? (laughs) Because frankly, it can be that painful at times. And what do you tell yourself to get yourself back to work, to get back to putting words on the page? So some some of it is my own drive of just wanting to see through what I started The other is, in the back of my head, I still know it's a necessary story. It's a needed story. Anytime I go out or I do reporting or I talk to other people or my friends who know I'm working on this, they're all like, we want to read that. What are you doing? You know, what what have you learned? Because they all have family members touched by this and going through it. So I try to keep that in mind. And then I also just try and tell myself, this is, you know, making me grow as a writer. So I just have to keep pushing forward and honor the process and not, um, and just keep going. I might, one of my daughters, my youngest daughter, Brooke has taken to, so mom, how's the book going? And she told me she's going to keep doing that to me until it's in a place where she can start reading pieces of it because she wants that as part of her legacy. So it's it's an interesting thing. But in the end, I have to be doing this because it's a story I need to tell, not that other people want it. And that kind of is more of my driving force than anything else. Narrative here serves a, a personal purpose uh, a, and a purpose for your family, right? right? Yes, it does. There are two quick montages of action you describe in the essay, um, one of which concerns the protective measures your brother takes to safeguard the house 
for your your mom's movements in the middle of the night when when he's exhausted and caring for her uh, very sleepily. Um, and the other is uh, comparatively to your brother's safety measures or or the measures that you take to to provide comfort to your mom, um, and especially in this as she transitions. Um, and you're both paying attention to details, which is this part of the story I really loved. And what does each montage say about who you are as your mom's children and as siblings? That's a really interesting question. I've never quite thought about it that way. But my brother, of course, saw himself as her protector. Even as things were getting really bad and she was getting really scared because she knew things were getting really bad. Um, And he told me that one day he just went into her room and sat down on the end of her bed and said, Mom, I know things are getting really bad. And she nodded and he said, and I know you're scared. And she nodded and he said, you got to know I got you. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. And you're just going to have to trust me that I'm going to be there and I'm going to take care of you. Um, Which to me was a really beautiful thing for him to pick up on and then acknowledge where she was and to give her that sense of um, emotional comfort, even though he was taking really um, physical safeguards, right, to keep her safe. I dealt with my mom more on an emotional level. She was the always, she was one of my first mentors, right? So she always would check in with me and emotionally guide me along. And so this was my chance to do the same for her. I mean, just think of how, um, you know, most mothers set up your room or they fill your space with things that mean something to you or they provide opportunities for you to find your passion. My mom was very much like that. So it was my honor in a lot of different ways to try and figure out how to create an environment for her because she created such a loving home for all of us. Like, how do I do that for her so that she knows that she's also surrounded by love? So you explore uh, this theme of, of travel as freedom um, and travel as transition and how much uh, travel can impact those who are left behind or, or supporting that travel. Um, like, for example, when you write your, your mother quit her job and how that impacted you. And it's, it's very difficult at, per, at first, but everybody learns valuable lessons from it. And so in what part of the writing process did this theme, this idea come to you and, and how did you shape it as you wrote and revised? Yeah, travel. I knew travel would always be a major theme there because it changed my mom so much when she did it. And then also she allowed me to want to travel. And, you know, I began to travel as well just because I saw how it opened the world up for her. Um, And then this idea of when she was with my brother, when he was her primary caregiver, and I was here in Texas and she was in New Jersey, a lot of how we did things involved putting her on a plane and having her come and stay with me for a while so he could have a break. And those trips evolved. It evolved from 
her being able to go by herself, to her having a friend bring her, to one of us actually getting special permission to take her to the gate and put her on the plane, and the other one would get permission to be at the gate to take her off the plane, to finally where we realized she couldn't do it anymore. So travel was always there, and it was just a matter of understanding its purpose in our life. And it gave us all freedom in a way, when you think about it. It gave my brother freedom when he was in the midst of caregiving. It gave me freedom. I learned how to mirror a sort of her example of it's okay to step away from your family and feed yourself sometimes. That it's, you know, that that is a survival mechanism that's perfectly okay. Um, so it, it was something to really play with. With narrative writing, you want the reader to feel like they're in a scene, that they are with you in your childhood home and this momentous day in your life, and they can smell and see what you smell and see and feel. And as a storyteller, you don't want to lose them, right? You don't want to digress into a long medical explanation in the middle of building a dramatic arc. But yet, in order to give context for everything that's happening you have to jump around in time. You have to tell backstory. You have to tell multiple backstories that play out at various stages and, and ping pong uh, over many years. Uh, how did you manage all of the timelines uh, in you know in such a in such a short narrative form? Yeah, that's really hard, and that took a lot of work. Um, I read a little book called The Art of Time that helped release me and understand how to use some of that. And I do think that, and I'm not sure that I've perfected it, but I am certainly am learning how to use it a little more effectively. Because you do, you do have to ping pong. I have to go back in her life, I have to go back in my life, and then we have to tell a story in whatever the present is, right? So it's very, very tricky. It's not an easy thing to do, but it, it is how we also think. It's how our brains work too, right? We don't think in a linear fashion um, unless we're able to really meditate and just be in the present, which most of us, you know, have trouble doing. We all kind of ping pong around like that. So it's, it's an art in trying to figure out how to do it so that you don't lose a reader. What tricks did you figure out? I think it helped to do like... Um, timelines for myself. Like when I started, I put things up against a timeline where I could actually see things unfold. Um, so that was one way of doing it and mastering. This is what, this is the progression of how things happened. And then I also had, I told you I had all these vignettes and scenes and stuff. So I started placing them into a timeline so that I could see where they fit in with that. And then with the, the backstory of what I knew about my mom and some other things, I also put on a timeline. So when I was able to look at all of those things in that way, then I can start the weaving process. You've been working on this book for a few years now, and your mother, as you said, passed away um, as you began to really write with great purpose. And What's your plan now, and uh, what does the, the future hold? Yes, that's, a, that's the loaded question, right? Um, yeah, well, as I said, I mean, one of the things I discovered is actually when I lost my mother, there was a period of time right after that where a single word wouldn't come out, like nothing. 
Like I just was so grief struck and so exhausted. I just couldn't even fathom how I was going to go back to this project. And then Easter Sunday, after she died in February, that Easter Sunday, I woke up and my family was getting ready to go to church and something just hit me. And I, I pulled out my laptop and I just started writing again. And it just kind of poured out of me. There were just, and as I said, that was the raw, kind of unfiltered grief stuff. So a lot of it was unusable, but some of it was usable because it was capturing a particular point in time. Even if a book you write isn't about your life or your family, it still teaches you something about your interior self. Um, I mean, that's the the theory I subscribe to. how has this process changed you or how you see or go about in the world? I think it's changed me because for the first time, actually just taking the initiative to do this is the first time I put myself first, if that makes sense. Because to do this, I had to carve actual time away from a lot of other people that I nurtured and I gave to. So um, it's changed me in that way. The other way is just learning the process of doing this and acknowledging that I am a writer and this is what I want to write. And I don't know, I mean, writers have self-doubt. I don't know what's going to happen with this. It was, the structure was flawed in the beginning and I had to kind of recobble it. And I'm still playing with that because I think you mentioned earlier about laying in the medical and the science on top of a very personal story. I still am grappling with how that's going to work and whether or not that's going to stop a narrative cold, like how much is too much and, and all of those kinds of things. So I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a learning process. When I started this, I felt, um, that's going to sound weird, but I, I feel very alive in trying to figure all these things out. Well, I appreciate you taking the time with us, with your tell, and for telling us this story and for opening up about your family and about your writing process. So thank you. I thank you for having me. This was my pleasure to do this. This episode featured music by Bessie Smith, Ketza, and Big Mean Sound Machine. To learn more about Hear Tell and the Low Residency MFA program at UGA, visit bit.ly slash hear tell podcast. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash hear tell podcast. Hear Tell will be back soon with another true story.